changemakers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many changemakers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. Well, today I'm really excited to have Evan Drame on the show. He's currently a student at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Before that, Evan worked for a nonprofit in Northern Virginia, providing employment development services to people with disabilities. In that role, he also worked with local and federal lawmakers on policy issues affecting those people in the workforce. He graduated from Princeton University as an undergrad in 2016, where he majored in SPIA, which was then known as the Woodrow Wilson School. After graduation from law school, Evan will be joining the United States Navy as an active duty JAG officer. Welcome to the show, Evan. Thank you so much for for having me on. So I'd love to get started with sort of a catch up on what you've been up to since 2016. That was what, five years ago? You had a job at a nonprofit, but tell me sort of what life's been like for you since leaving Princeton. Yeah, well, since leaving Princeton, I returned to Northern Virginia, where I was born and raised, uh, for a job with Service Source. Service Source is the nonprofit that you mentioned. We are a nonprofit disability resource provider that provides employment support and other services to individuals and veterans with disabilities. And we also work with state, local, and federal lawmakers on policy issues that affect those individuals in the workforce. So I started there actually as an employment development specialist with a caseload of about 30 individuals and I would work with them to achieve jobs in the community that matched their particular profile, that mitigated any limitations that they might have had and amplified their skills. And after working there for about a year, the organization saw that I had this huge policy background from, from Princeton that I was also very uh, engaged with. And so they created, in addition to my role as an employment development specialist, they also had me working as a public policy specialist working with lawmakers um, to advance a lot of policy issues that we saw were affecting the individuals that we were serving at the organization. Um, in addition to working at Service Source, I've gone back to law school. I've been a full-time law student, and I've continued to do some work with the nonprofit on the side as well. And while I was in law school, I uh, gained a huge interest in in military law, and that kind of partly was influenced by my work at Service Source, working with with veterans and veterans coming out of the military with disabilities. And so it became my goal while I was in law school to commission into the Navy and become a naval officer. Fortunately, I got, uh, a pr- I got professionally recommended, which is the first step of the process, back in 2018. And now I'm able to, after I graduate from law school, go active duty and become a JAG officer. So was law school sort of always part of the plan for you, or did that develop over time? So it's a funny story. I actually grew up in a family with both of my parents are lawyers. And uh, I, I, going into Princeton, I was convinced that I would not go to law school because <laughs> it, was the, it was the thing that both of my parents had done. And to go to law school would be uh, following too much in the, in the family business. And I wanted to kind of uh, trek out on my own. Um, politics and policy was always more of my, my interest. And I thought law was... I I viewed that as kind of a distinct and separate field. Um, And what really changed my mind was after I left Princeton and 
was working for service source. And, you know, we had a, a lot of the individuals we worked with, uh, they, the issues would come up on their job sites with employers sometimes, and I would have to file letters with the EEOC, or I, ha- I would have to negotiate with employers. And I saw the ways in which law and policy were so linked and how in order to kind of further my desire to serve people in the policy realm and, and be enacting policies that I think are beneficial, uh, it was essential for me to, to get a, a legal background to be able to do that. And also working with so many veterans and learning about the JAG Corps, which is kind of the legal branch of the military, taught me that there's this other side to law. My, my mom had been a, uh, a corporate attorney and my dad did legal malpractice, which or, you know, nothing against people who go into those fields, but I was always looking for some way to be really giving back to a cause that I believed in, something larger than myself, and discovering the JAG Corps and the ability to fuse uh, service in the military with legal advocacy was something that really changed, changed my mind in that direction. That's great. That was actually my next question was sort of where the military focus in law stemmed. And, and it sounds like it was at that job, but was there any inkling of that earlier in life? Yeah. So uh, in a way, both sides of my family contributed this to this in, in their own in their own respects. Um, my, on my dad's side, we, we actually do come from a Navy family. My grandfather and great-grandfather were both naval captains. Uh, both are buried in Arlington National Cemetery right now, not far oh, from wow. where I go to law school. And um, so that I have that background on my on my dad's side. On my mom's side, uh, my grandparents were refugees from Hungary in Eastern Europe who arrived shortly after World War II in the United States. And my grandmother actually lived with uh, my family growing up when I was growing up. And she, you know, my, with my parents were working full time, and she was kind of like a third parent to me and helping to raise me and my brother. And because she was a recent immigrant, she had this kind of deep, kind of very organic patriotism about what it meant to be an American and what it meant, you know, the importance of giving back to the country. She, she knew really what it was like to not have the, a lot of the benefits and the privileges that um, some people who have maybe grown up here for a longer period take for granted. So I think in a way, I also, from her, had this notion that service is something that's very important, giving back. Is, is essential and that we should all be grateful of the things that the nation has afforded to us. And combined, you know, the, the Navy background on my father's side with the emphasis on service and patriotism that I got from, from my immigrant grandmother, uh, I think that's, if you have to pinpoint something that was uh, a more fundamental influence, those two things would be it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've been asking people on this show what policy issues they think are sort of at the forefront right now. And I'm curious how you would answer that question from your own lens of where you sit right now in law school or, or even just, you know, personally speaking, what are you concerned about? What do you hope to influence or change? Yeah, well, there are, there are two overarching issues that I think cause me the most concern. The first would be this current, I would call it a crisis of confidence in capitalism, in the structure of our economic model in the United States. And and the Western world generally. And it's interesting because stock returns, the equity markets have been performing very well over this past decade, but those gains have gone to a smaller percentage of Americans because a record number have opted out of of the market, actually, and and marginalized groups, especially racial and ethnic minorities or persons with disabilities, are significantly less likely to invest. 
So as a result, our capital markets have come to be seen as a plaything of the wealthy instead of an engine of economic growth for the masses, which they could be with the right policies. And this, of course, is, is evident in the rise of populism and a distrust of the elites on both sides of the political spectrum. Um, another separate but interrelated issue is the intergenerational wealth gap. So there was a recent article in the Washington Post uh, declaring millennials to be the unluckiest generation in U.S. history huh. based on GDP growth per person throughout individuals' working lives. And millennials would have to, at this point, earn about four times as much wealth to match where the boomer generation was at our age. So this intergenerational wealth gap has very significant consequences because First, it's going to deepen inequities between racial demographics as wealth remains concentrated in the hands of an older, predominantly white subgroup. It also has negative consequences on our long-term growth and productivity. And it really hints at, you know, it hits at this fundamental psyche of the American dream, you know, one that I grew up with come to having an immigrant grandmother, namely that you know, the next generation is always supposed to do better than your parents did. And this inter intergenerational wealth gap is, is really hitting at what has always been such a fundamental aspect of what we feel it is to be an American. So unfortunately, we're not even close to addressing those issues. If anything, it seems that they're going to become much worse, uh, largely due to the structure of our entitlement programs like Social Security and the impending financing crisis that, that faces those programs. And if nothing changes, then younger Americans are going to be expected to sacrifice larger and larger amounts of their incomes to prop up uh, a social security system with rates of return that are significantly below what they could be earning in the in the private capital markets. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing those things up. I I know what you're saying and I feel like sometimes it's something that like we're all aware of it but we're not maybe talking about it or doing anything about it, so I appreciate yeah. you bringing that up so directly. It's something that actually um I first got interested in when I was at Princeton at SPIA oh. um, because I, I worked, SPIA had an, a student task force on entitlement reform that was, uh, you know, it, I think it was somewhat cutting edge in that you know, people were talking about the issues of entitlements, but um, it was still a problem that a lot of people viewed as being kind of, you know, uh, in the future, <laughs> you know, something that, that a lot of people didn't want to have to think about or deal with. And, and especially now with coronavirus, it's become an even more relevant topic because the date of insolvency for Social Security and all these entitlements is, is going to come much sooner than people had anticipated. So the CBO now puts Social Security as being insolvent in 2031. And when I was at Princeton, they were expecting you know, 2035 or you know, later in that decade. So, um, so we, have, we have less time, unfortunately, <laughs> than, we did, than we did back then. And it was, it was a topic that uh, I first became involved with really because of my because of that task force that I participated in at SPIA. Yeah. I wonder too, you know, I, I just read an article before we were chatting here about, they were calling it the great resignation, people sort of leaving jobs, either just retiring because they simply don't want to go back or people, you know, realizing, oh, you know, I really like remote work and I want to find a company that will, will do that. I wonder how that will affect any of what you're talking about, like with, you know, mass numbers of people retiring. I don't know, just, uh, just throwing that in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's one of the projections that the CBO has factored in is that a lot of people, uh, a lot of older adults are leaving the workforce earlier, which means that they're yeah. going to be drawing on social security sooner, right? Uh, which obviously impacts the date in which the program becomes insolvent. 
you know, I'm obviously very excited about the uh, piece that was just published in the Milken Institute review um, called Saving Social Security from Itself, partly because uh, it's, it's getting s- some buzz with, uh, with congressional staff, um, partly because of my uh, powers of persuasion and, and networking. <laughs> but, uh, but I think that the, the piece, one reason why I wanted to publish it is because there's been, especially now on Capitol Hill, there's, there have, there's been more discussion about what's going to happen with Social Security as the date 2021, 2031, the insolvency date comes sooner. But all the suggestions seem to be to raise revenue with the goal of propping up the current system, which to me is throwing good money after bad because the, f- the framework itself is flawed. Um, and so I'm, in my piece, I'm, I suggest that there, there needs to be revenue in the short term to close the financing gap. But the piece suggests transitioning the system towards private accounts that are invested in, in capital markets. It uses the, the Swedish premium pension fund as a model. And the reason why I think this is important is it ties back to those two overarching policy issues I mentioned earlier, the crisis of confidence in capitalism and the intergenerational wealth gap. This private system of private individual accounts would help those two issues immensely. Uh, overnight, every American becomes an investor with a stake in the performance of our capital markets. And young Americans are able to grow their own wealth over the course of their working lives rather than have their payroll tax money transferred to older generations via the entitlement system. So I'm, I'm very excited about the potential uh, you know, for that piece. And, and I've, I've been uh, able to have conversations with congressional staff about where they see the debate about Social Security going. And you know, because I'm I'm about to uh, be joining the military. It's it's night and and not going to be able to do as much in the political and policy realms. It's kind of been uh, you know a nice uh, send off for me, if you will, my, my last kind of full project in law school on the policy side. Well, I guess shifting a little bit to to sort of your career, and I know in many ways it's still just beginning, but um, I'm sort of curious what you've learned along the way of of you know having your former position and then, you know, now being in law school, just what are, what are sort of the skills and strategies you've, you've been gaining? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I would say the most, the most important skill, and, you know, I want to, um, want to be careful because, uh, there are so many, uh, skills that, um, I think have, have shaped my career since, since leaving Princeton would be the ability to disagree without being disagreeable, or to put, an, put another way, the uh, ability to provoke without becoming provocative. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my time in the policy realm thus far, it, it seems like you kind of meet two types of people, uh, those who don't want to make anyone uncomfortable and try to be liked by everybody. And sometimes the policy suggestions reflect that and aren't cutting edge or don't kind of uh, go against the grain when they should. And second, those who try to make, who, who purposefully try to make other people uncomfortable and don't care at all about how other people perceive them. And I think the correct balance is in between those two extremes. And Professor Robert George uh, from Princeton said something very interesting to his students when, when I was at Princeton. And he said, um, he said, the best thing to do is to just go out there and tell people the truth. 
And there's no need to set out with the goal to be confrontational or provocative. He said, just by virtue of saying how you really feel, it's inevitable that you'll end up creating controversy at some point. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have to try to create controversy or be somebody that's a polemic. And especially in the current kind of heated policy environment in which we find ourselves, that has really struck with me. And I've you know, always been somebody who, you know, I go out there and I, if I'm talking about a particular policy issue or a legal issue, I'm blunt with people. I'm honest about what I think, what the law says or what the policy should be, but I'm not trying to get a rise out of people. On the other hand, I'm also not afraid to, you know, go against the conventional wisdom. That's a great quality to have. I mean, as a, as someone who studied journalism once, I also very much appreciate facts and sort of just getting the facts across. And I'm sure you can lean on the law a bit in that way. Um, what's law school like, by the way? I, I think it takes a special breed of person to go to law school. I know I'm not that person. <laughs> it seems like a lot of work. Yeah, well, it's in my DNA. So maybe maybe that has <laughs> something to do with it. Um, you know, it comes from both both parents at this point. But uh, it's 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 interesting. I would say um, my advice to people before they apply to law school and want to come to law school is make sure you know what you want to do after you leave. Um, because there are a lot of people who kind of come to law school as a way, you know, they, they want to find themselves intellectually and uh, they, they don't necessarily know which graduate program to do. And law school seems like kind of a default that a lot of very intelligent people go to law school. And uh, it is a very there's a lot of opportunity to cost to it. It's a lot of time, a lot of money. And so it's a very expensive way to, to find yourself if you don't know what you're going to be doing with a law degree after, after you leave. So, um, so it, the actual experience, if you have the motivation and you have a goal in mind um, for why you're there, that makes it a much more enjoyable time and you feel like you're getting much more out of it. Um, then if you are, you know, you kind of go with this kind of open-ended sense of what you're going to get out of a law school. Um, so I, you know, I found because I had JAG Corps as a motivation the whole time going through, uh, it really gave, it really grounded me and gave me a sense for, um, for what I wanted to get out of it. And as a result, I think the experience for me hasn't been the horror story that some people describe it yeah. as. That's such a good point. When you have something you're kind of laser focused on as an end, end point in some ways that, that probably helps things a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, just turning, I guess, to Princeton a bit, I'm sort of curious in what ways you feel that Princeton and the School of Public and International Affairs sort of shaped you or prepared you for your career. There are many, many ways. Uh, obviously, um, there are definitely the practical skills that I picked up. So, uh, for example, becoming a better writer and, and researcher, being able to interpret statistics and, and data. Uh, respecting the facts, like you mentioned earlier. Um, on a deeper level, though, I think what was really, really valuable uh, was that the school helped me gain confidence, I'd say, in, my, in myself and my policy viewpoints. So I'd say SPIA encouraged students to learn from mentors, of course, and recognize you don't know everything <laughs> at the age of 18 through 21, 22, but also, it encouraged us not to be afraid to add our own perspectives to policy debates. And frequently, college students feel like they invest a ton of resources into something which doesn't go anywhere. Kind of like 
how I feel about social security, <laughs> but they, mm. they work for hours on a paper, you know, that the professor grades, but then no one else sees. And right. Spia did an incredible job of putting student research front and center. And, you know, this podcast is evidence of how they continue to do that for, for alumni as well. Um, you know, I was able to participate uh, my junior year on uh, this task force and contribute independent work on social security reform. And then we presented, the students compiled a majority report and presented our findings in front of scholars with the Urban Institute and and Brookings Institution. And, you know, I I can't imagine where else those kinds of opportunities are available to students because I've I've talked to other undergraduates who, uh, you know, who say that that was, it's such a unique experience based on the conversations I've had with other with other people um, based on where they went to school. Um, one of the scholars from, from the Brookings Institution was actually Alice Rivlin, um, director of OMB in the Clinton administration. So she, you know, big names that were yeah. taking the time to listen to us. And it's because of the connections that SPIA has in these policy communities. And um, needless to say, she wasn't a giant fan of my proposal to partially privatize social security, but she said I was an extremely articulate spokesman. So I, I took that as, as being a, uh, you know, one of the best uh, reviews I, I, I could hope for uh, based on our, our potential policy disagreements on the issue. But, um, but yeah, so, so the kind of exposure that students get and the ability to go out there early on in their careers when, when you're still a student and still growing and learning, uh, but to be able to learn how to express yourself, to articulate yourself, and, and having been respected enough by people who are already in the community that they take the time to to listen to us and engage with us on on our own research was such a such a valuable skill and 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 lesson that I learned. Did it kind of feel like you were sort of part of the policy process, even though it was really you know just a presentation? And did you feel like you you were part of something? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, a hundred percent. You know, I mean, they were oftentimes it's you know a lot of these innovations in policy could just happen because. Uh, somebody who's important picks up an idea from, it could be an unlikely source. And so, you know, there's no reason why anybody, us giving that presentation could have sparked something in one of the people sitting on that panel. Um, yeah. And so exposure is, is you know, 50% of the fight is always showing up and being in the room. And the fact that Spia was putting us in the room with people who were such really like elevated dignitaries in the in the realm of policy was uh, a huge huge thing I appreciate you sharing that concrete example because I've heard other alums, both graduate students and undergrads, say that SPIA helped them with their confidence and I'm always sort of wondering like how directly so that that's such a great example just to to wrap things up today as we're just about out of time, I'm curious if you could impart some some wisdom, some advice for young people entering the workforce, or maybe some prospective students to SPIA, or just even those who are thinking about a career switch um, in these times? Yeah. Well, it, it boils down to one thing. Uh, and I would say you should learn from those around you, but don't feel afraid, afraid to leave your own mark. So there are obviously going to always be more experienced scholars who have a lot to teach you and take advantage of that especially if you're at a place like SPIA where you're surrounded by such exceptional talent. But you also have a lot to offer, even if you're still a college student or a recent graduate. And in my opinion, my experience, success 
usually requires some form of trial and error. And so you may have to swing a few times before you hit the home run, but getting into the batter's box as early as possible and taking some swings, even if you miss most of them, is incredibly valuable. And I was able to do that during my time at SPIA. You know, I didn't hit a home run on every single policy initiative or endeavor I was passionate about, but um, you know, the one experience where I was able to do that has, has stuck with me, and I would encourage more students to be able to put themselves in positions where, where they can do the same. Well, Evan, this has been fantastic talking to you today. I appreciate everything you've said, and I know those listening do as well. So thank you so much for joining us on Changemakers. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me, and really thank you for, for having this as a, as a program that, that you do. I think it's so, value, so valuable both for, obviously, prospective students, but also for you know, alumni like me. It's, it's such a you know, great way to stay connected with, with the SPIA community and the Princeton community. I appreciate that so much. Take care. You've been listening to Changemakers, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Rose Huber. Listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.